be helpful if I turn that on. <laughs> I appreciate being able to be uh, here together on retreats and to feel the sense of um, power in the collective presence and focus that's here um, in a world that sometimes feels like it's spinning out of control and is getting more and more complex and more and more um, overwhelming and uh, dangerous in so many ways that just to feel that sense of simplicity and presence and um, possibility of supporting each other in a practice that is not connected with, with exploitation or harming anything or anyone or overly extracting resources but actually is a particular focus on learning to develop and cultivate an internal abiding that is wholesome, that is supportive, that is nourishing, that is enduring, and that is conducive to awakening and realization. This is actually a tremendous gift that we can give to each other to come together and um, support this process of being on retreat. It's not um, always easy. Sometimes it uh, it feels peaceful and we we feel a relief for being able to unplug from the pressures of maybe our daily life and other times it can feel quite challenging as different states come up, uh, different mind states and feelings and emotions and we can feel the ground evaporate beneath us and different uh, kinds of bodily experiences arise. So it's very mixed for each of us, but however, the commitment to to be here and to go through an experience together like this and uh, to use these ancient teachings and keep contemplating them and practicing with them is, a, is, a, is something of great benefits. This practice we've been to, doing today of uh, Anapanasati, awareness of the inhalation and exhalation of the breath, the satipatthana, the cultivation particularly of the first foundation of mindfulness is, um, is uh, you know, already one can begin to feel some of the fruits of that. One doesn't have to look very far into some big enlightenment project, but already in small ways just being able to calm down and be with even one breath uh, to be with one step as we walk, to maybe appreciate our food a little more, uh, to feel ourselves in our body, uh, to to feel the sense of some of the stress dissolving. You know, already some of the fruits of a simple, simple practice, like being present, become evidence, sometimes very quickly. And that's important, that's important that we can recognize and experience and taste that fruit, even in very small ways, uh, to, to help um, increase our faith and confidence that this practice is a good practice to do. It uh, cultivated over a lifetime, it uh, 
brings many blessings. And it's not that we need a lot of equipment to do it, or we need to be a special person, or we need to come from a special kind of background. This is, as I said, when we began the retreat yesterday, the Buddha taught this practice for all kinds of beings and all kinds of circumstances, for human beings just like you and me, that uh, you know get deluded, get lost, get overwhelmed, get caught up, and yet have great potential. Yeah, that we all have great potential that uh, we should not ever give up on ourselves because we do carry this great uh, seed of awakening. And with the right conditions and the cultivation of the practice, it begins to to activate within our life and begins to, to grow. And we can quick, quicken that growth through this more conscious application of the path. Today, in to support this being, the simplicity of being with the breath, we've been exploring this foundational practice called Viveka to learn to withdraw our attention from the complexities of life. It's not to say that's the only move that we make, that we just keep sort of hiding away, but it's very different when we have some samadhi, some gatheredness, some rootedness in reality, some wise reflective capacity, when we turn that kind of mind to the difficulties or the situation of the of a life and of a world around us, it's a very different experience than when we just keep getting overwhelmed and reactive and lost so we don't have much grounding and much gatheredness. So the gatheredness is samadhi, this practice we've of cultivating a gatheredness and presence through the activity of moments of mindfulness it doesn't just come about because of wishful thinking, because we would like it to be like that, but it comes about because we practice. You know, one breath at a time, one moment at a time, again and again and again, however crazy it gets, we practice returning. You could actually say all of this path is about returning, returning home, returning back to the heart, to the awareness, to the knowing, to presence the foundation of our being, ground of our being, that is connected with a profound intelligence. It's called prajna, the wisdom. So this viveka is uh, withdrawing again and again the, the fascination, the disappointment, the agitation, the longing, the hankering, the covetousness that we have in regard to our experience of the world. Uh, So that it's an activity of uh, profound simplification. And uh, it's uh, in the moments when we can do that, it's actually uh, a relief, but it's not always easy. There's some sort of struggle because of the habit of always sort of chewing over, mind's always chewing over something. So that's a, there's a habitual way, the pathways of the mind, of the brain, even of how we continually go sometimes to, to places of anxiety or, or places of speculation or, or old um, storylines. And again, there's nothing wrong with going there, but it's very different when we go there with some samadhi and some investigation. Uh, so, so, to cultivate that gatheredness, this withdrawing attention and bringing it to, to the simplicity of what's here. 
which at first for men, for you know, for many of us is not something that's particularly interesting. It's more interesting if we sat and watched a movie together and we talked about it. <laughs> sit here for an hour, no problem, <laughs> you know. But to sit here, you know, with 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 something that seems so, you know, mundane for us, maybe our breath and our body, ourselves, takes some some sort of attunement to do that, some kind of um, commitment to keep going to do that to the to the point that it actually does become interesting and it becomes more fulfilling. It's more nourishing. We can, you can feel that turn at a certain point. At first, not very interesting. We're used to being distracted, and then at a certain point, it becomes shifts, and we realize it's it's really the best place to be. So it's, we feel finally, we feel some of the lessening of the agitation, and we can begin to feel a sense of being more grounded, more fulfilled, more more gathered within our own being, more kind, more sensitive to a body. So this this is a very important factor in the path. Ajahn Chah, our teacher from Thailand, forest, um, the master from the forest school, he once said that regardless of time and place, the whole practice of the Dharma comes to completion at the place of surrender of laying down the burden. Regardless of time and place, this practice comes to fruition, completion at the place of laying down the burden, of letting go. Uh, so in some ways that that is an invitation to, to, to do something that's actually quite innate to us. Every breath, out-breath that we take is a movement into that letting go. It's already taking us there. Uh, it's something that, uh, you know, in, in, in the ways of the world, it feels like we have to keep holding and, and gathering and accumulating and ho- uh, grasping. That's what the encouragement is. But actually our natural being, you know, when we start to feel into the natural rhythm and the deeper wisdom of our nature, then naturally... We don't even have to let go because we don't grasp first. <laughs> we realize we don't need to hold on so much. So the letting go is arbitrary, actually. Letting go is the next step beyond being able to live more in the, in the, with the reality of the fluidity of life, with, with not having to hold so tightly. But generally speaking, we, we, we sort of have to practice letting go because we hold on to all sorts of things all the time. So as many of you heard the story of Ajahn Chah when he was with his disciples walking and he pointed to these very large, big, big boulders <clears throat> and said to them, are, they, are those heavy? And they said, yes, Lung Po, yes, Venerable Father, they're very, very heavy. And he said, well, well they're not if you don't pick them up. <laughs> you just leave them where they are, then they're not so heavy. You know, so when we come into a meditation retreat, we suddenly realize how many boulders we've picked up. You know, it can feel pretty heavy. You know, what are we carrying around that we actually perhaps don't need to carry around all the time? You know, so we can put put them down. We can you can pick them up if you want, but for now we can just put down, empty out the boulders in our pockets. You know, once. Um, Kitty Sara and I, we went to um, on a pilgrimage to Mount Kailash, 
in Tibet, which is very difficult <laughs> to do, very demanding. But in the, in the high desert of the Tibetan plateau, there's a tremendous, in the rocks and in the mountains and in the sands and in the earth, there's tremendous colors, turquoise and reds and yellows and beautiful brown colors, earthy colors, and these incredible stones. So when you're at high altitude, which one is, walking around Mount Kailash, your highest point is 19,000 feet, which is sort of near death zone, well, it was for me anyway. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite hard. Every, every step you take, you know, it's like a practice for when you're 99, because it's, like, it's really hard to move. You know, but I couldn't resist picking up these stones, you know, so I, I started to land up with these big pockets full of these beautiful stones, you know, the, the irony of being on pilgrimage, whole thing's about letting go, and I'm sort of like <laughs> struggling each step with, and in the end I realized, you know, this is madness, it's just let, let the stones keep, you know, throw them away, let them go, let them go back to the earth, you know. Actually, at one point, I started to let go so much that I even threw my passport away. So I, that's, that's just let go of that too. Unfortunately, Kitty Sara said, well, you might need that. You know? <laughs> but there's these, this sense of what we hold on to. One of the, the, the important factors of the path is path activity. Someone's asking about path activity. What supports this practice? A lot of what we're putting in place, like that image of the garden, cultivating the garden, is that which helps to cultivate the right conditions for awakening, we're putting into place. So one of the factors, a very important factor, particularly in regard to the meditative practice, is that in the, in the template of spiritual perfections, the parameters, good energies that we can cultivate, the third one is called nikama, which means renunciation, which is connected with this activity of simplification, learning to, to put down, learning to renounce. You know, it's not maybe a very popular word in our contemporary culture, but it's a very important uh, practice for, as a foundation for, even in a very uh, simple way in this uh, practice of being with the breath, there's a certain renunciation that's ha- happening. We're learning to, even in a, a moment, to let go with our, let go of the fascination of our thinking. Even on that level, I say even on that level, that's actually quite a hard level to work because we're so compulsively kind of connected and stuck to our cognitive frame of life. We think about ourselves and this world and others you know, continually. And sometimes what we're thinking about isn't actually even altogether that real. Yeah, but it becomes real, we make it real, we infuse it with reality. So that movement of relinquishing, when we come to the breath, it's a very simple movement, but there's a, there's a resistance there sometimes. More interesting to keep speculating in, our, in, our, in our, the mansions of our inner realms of thinking than to renounce and let go and just to be with the simplicity of the body breathing. So even at that level, there is this practice of this third parameter. In the, the Sanskrit, nikamati, the root of that actually is quite interesting. It's interesting to go back into some of these words because it has 
the in, within the meaning it has both a sense of leaving behind, just leaving behind like those rocks that we gather, those beautiful things that we gather, just being able to leave them behind. You know, one day we will have to leave them behind. <laughs> so to leave them behind already. So it has the meaning of leaving behind, but it also has a positive sense of going forth. Because if we sometimes we can't really go forth until we let go. So in the in the word for when you go forth uh, as a monastic, when you take ordination, the word upasampata literally means to go forth. You've gone forth from something else. You've gone forth from a way of being in the world. You go forth in faith. You go forth in trust, actually. You go forth into a life that you strip away all certainties and you trust that the Dharma will rise up. This is the ideal. It doesn't always shake down quite like that, but the ideal is that the Dharma will rise up and uh, support. So in a, in a very small way, each moment we are invited to go forth. As this practice is inviting us to go forth from our, the structures of how we tend to operate in ways that give us a sense of, um, of, of um, certainty. But the world is not certain. You know, so we're going forth into reality. We're going forth into the actual reality of how transient and how changeable reality actually is. Life actually is. We're going forth to open into contemplating and allowing ourselves in that movement to feel the authentic the authenticity of feeling the uncertain nature of our experience. But that's not so easy as we want to keep shoring up this feeling of, of certainty, stability. You know, we do it often through our thinking um, and through our cognition and through our planning. So it's a, it's a sort of an act, in some ways it's an act of nakedness. You know, but we're going forth, we're not just sort of like Zen jump off the hundred foot pole. It's sort of progress into that, but <laughs> but we're going forth to the breath. <laughs> so it's not a big journey, you know. It's not a big shift. It's not a big risk, but it's something that is enough for us to practice with. It's a doable thing. You know, in each moment we we surrender this place of surrendering, pick up. This simple practice of being with something that actually ultimately we can't control. It's not within the sphere of our ultimate ownership and control. We can control the breath a little bit, maybe pranayama, whatever. But the breath, this is one thing that is so intimate to us, which is this breath, which is also so profoundly impersonal to us. And yet it's so profoundly connected to our very capacity to be alive. And it is so amazingly something that we just don't pay any attention to that much. So it's a good metaphor for this more uh, subtle dharma. Subtle dharma of which leads us back into our own 
awareness, this, you say this dharma nature is our awareness. This awareness, it's a, it's, we can not pay much attention to it, but without awareness, without presence, then nothing else is for us. It illuminates everything. So this returning and moving back into the ground of being through the doorway of the breath, the breath within the breath, sometimes said, said by Rumi actually, but it's a nice way of being with this experience of entering through the breath into presence, into deepening into the roots of beingness here. In a very, you know, this utter naked simplicity that's, that we're invited into in this practice. And at the same time, the breath, being with sensation, being with the body, becomes the ground for the cultivation of this gatheredness, this important factor of the path is called samadhi. Is a samadhi, which is, literally means the movement, um, that that which is um, holding together, actually, is, is that the, to hold together, that which holds together, gathers together. So in this uh, in this movement, this very simple movement, is a willingness to, to release, to practice, not so much to get something. Jen Char used to say people came, Westerners started to come first in the 1970s to his monastery, often sort of washed up from the hippie trail or from Vietnam. A lot of veterans, well, few came as early disciples, Americans, Europeans. Um, and he would say, um, you know, why have you come here? <laughs> It's so usually you want to get something, right? You want to get enlightened, you know? And he said, well, you know, if you, you, if you come here to die, <laughs> if you come here to let go, so well, not, not really. <laughs> but, you know, he was, uh, you know, that was his style of teaching, very direct, but, you know, he's basically saying, actually, don't come here to get something, come here to let go of things. You know? <laughs> come here to simplify, come here to return. I'm here to, to, to allow the process of stripping away of our complexity so we can return to the roots. So in, connected with the contemplation of this third parameter of renunciation, letting go, is often coupled with that is the contemplation, not only of impermanence, that in fact in reality we can't hold things, but is the contemplation of, of death. As we chanted uh, tonight in this subjects of frequent recollection, which is done daily in uh, monastic training, I'm of the nature to age, nature to sicken, nature to die. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. So this isn't meant to be a contemplation to become morbid or depressed or you know, heavy, but it's a contemplation to draw us nearer into reality. So this is waking up, we're waking up. You know, this is reality. This body is of the nature to age. So many of us are finding out. <laughs> 
to be subjected. All of us will experience ill health, weakness sometimes things beyond our control and is of the nature ultimately to pass back into the elements. So it's a bit like putting this in in the in the in the um part of our you know or the way we orientate within life to have this contemplation near to us is is encouraged. And certainly Ajahn Chah encouraged. Certainly the Buddha encouraged, certainly this practice of awakening encourages us to hold this near to us. This is a way of helping us to remember that we're not here forever, that we are passing through, that we aren't ultimately owning things. We are responsible for things, we can cherish people and loved ones and things, but we don't own them. We can't even own this body of ours. As Ajahn Chah would say, you know, if your body gets sick, did it ask you for permission? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know. And we take it very, very personally, but sometimes the body just gets sick. It's not so personal. It's not your fault. You know, it just happens. Sometimes, yes, we can live in ways that that can create imbalances in the body and we can address that, but sometimes the body and its nature and great, great saints the Buddha gets sick. It's a nature inherent within the body. So it's not a a way, you know, just to to hold, helps us. It's like where we are in South Africa. Um, There's a wonderful river near the Hermitage, the Dhammagiri Hermitage, where we teach, practice, some of the year. It's called the Uzumkulu it comes down from the mountains from Lesotho, and because that's a high plateau country, 10,000 feet, that by the time it comes into the river near us, it's sometimes quite cold. Um, but it's a beautiful w- river to, to, to swim in. Yeah, it's uh, really delicious. It's pure. The water's completely pure. It's, it's no pollution in this water, and it's right out in the, in the midst of the mountains, <clears throat> And so we like to go there. Some days, at times, the days are very hot, and we like to throw ourselves in this river. But you know, when you th- throw yourself in, it's, it's it can be cold. You know, it's not actually that cold, but compared to being in the sun, it's a bit cold. So there's some resistance, and you just throw yourself in and swim around, and then it starts to you adapt to the temperature, and then you come out and you feel exhilarated. The skin feels lovely, and it's just very, very, very alive. In the same way, this contemplation of, of death and impermanence, it, it can be like that. It's like you need to resist it. You don't want to put yourself there, but if you put yourself there in the stream of reality, then, then actually it's alivening. You know, it's like, well, well, you know, it's let's use what we have well. It's not to, to oppress or frighten us, but just to aliven us. So this this contemplation of of uh, entering the river of reality, as we enter in the same way as that enjoyment of the of swimming in the Uzumkulu River, as we we we're not moving out as we relinquish and simplify, we're we're actually moving into another kind of current. It's a current of the Dharma. 
the currents that we feel and experience as awareness and as presence. It's alive. Yeah, this is our connection with life, with life, with wisdom, with insight. It's a, it's a different kind of flow, and it's a flow that actually to enter that, there has to be a certain stripping away, a certain willingness to allow the uncertainty to be present, the lack of control. Because it's an act of faith, an act of trust. Yeah, so, but you know, gradually we, we soften there, we rest there, we allow ourselves to, to be carried, we allow the practice to carry us through the feelings of, oh, I don't want to do this, or it's going so well, I'm going to devote my life, or when can I get out of here, or when is lunchtime, or my knee hurts, or I'm sleepy, or it's going great, it's going bad, you know, through all the reactions, you just carry, carries you one breath, another breath, another breath, and gradually you begin to feel underneath there's another current happening that's, a, that's present, that's alive, that's listening. This is a trust, it's a trusting of life, trusting of the Dharma. So this, this, these kinds of contemplation helps us begin to hold, you know, to hold our experience, to hold even our life, to hold our loved ones, to hold our dramas, to hold the complexity more lightly. Uh, not to, to, to remove some of those boulders, to be a bit more buoyant. It's amazing how we, I can experience it myself, how we can really make things a bit heavy, difficult for ourselves. Not no, no, no reason to do it, but one just lands up doing it. <laughs> you know, struggling away. You know, just like, just take a breath. <laughs> just release, you know, relax, let it carry you, you know. So, so, and you know, and this this is a really important for because actually things aren't necessarily light; they can be very intense. They are intense. They are difficult. You know, we live in a culture and a society um, everywhere now that is in- increasingly intensified, increasing conflicts. There's racial conflicts here in America. It's been very heightened, very difficult or whether it's uh, different kinds of um, wars going on, political conflict, or you know, more profoundly what's happening in globally with the, with the, the um, environmental crisis that we're awakening into, which is horrifying, terrifying, really activating, activate us into to incredible fear and overwhelm and stress and avoidance and denial and anger and rage and fear dread so to, to so as not to say we can't be with all that but how can we be with all that how can we be with all that and to understand that actually we can be with that in a way where whatever is unfolding it's not certain you know this is a training for us to to meet the circumstances of life in it with as increased capacity as we can, mindfully, awareness, with some gatheredness, some focus, connecting with wisdom, but to meet it with, within the flow of reality. It's not certain. Even in an increasingly uncertain world, just 
you know, which is connected to 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 how each of us live. For example, the the tremendous pressure on the resources now on the planet. For example, when uh, before um, in Syria, before whatever one would call that a civil war or it sort of imploded on itself about two years before that or so there was a tremendous drought this is a result in many ways of how we collectively living now on the planet as it warms up it was this horrific drought which which resulted in the loss of 60 percent of fertile land and 80 percent of the cattle there and created this instability, profound instability in the in the country, the uprising of, of of peasants who had nothing to lose anymore. One of the the the, the com, com, um, contributing factors that helped to spark, and also political issues, geographical, um, geopolitical issues in the area. But underlying, as more and more underlying, some of the conflicts is this, or what's actually happening and unfolding, are are wars connected with a fight for diminishing resources. It's all connected with in, in many places now, not just there. It's connected with this difficulty that we have as human beings to simplify, to to let go, to renounce, to to trust. Um, uh, and allow ourselves to live in a way in the Dharma where we're not having to to sort of you know, consume the whole planet to fill our aching void. So it's you know this is a, on the larger scale, but if we bring it to the smaller scale, we can explore how can we practice just now in this very simple way something that's actually profound to learn to simply be, you know, simply be with, with breathing. And to recognize in that, as in the cultivation of the renunciation, the paramita, that it's a going forth. It's a, a possibility of opening us into a new way of being. A way out of the the, the strategies of the, of how we usually negotiate the world, our world. You know, we have strategies, and and some of them are functional, and it's important to have strategies, and it can be really helpful. But sometimes we can get to a place where they don't work. We don't know how to be, or we in a place it's not easy for the strategy to. It's not that functional anymore. We could say we're working with strategies and system and systemic levels that are increasingly dysfunctional. So where do we go at that point? What can we trust? Where can we listen? In these small places of awakening, you know, they, they're, they're, we start to open into another kind of way of listening and hearing and being. There's, uh, I want to read to you um, from about... Um, an example of this. This is a friend of ours who had practiced with us in South Africa. 
This was her experience. She was practicing in a, in a place and left the, the um, protection of the, of the center and went to walk in an area that actually, actually wasn't that safe, in the forest. Her and a friend wanted to go for a walk. I was walking with a friend in a forest when we realized we were being followed and we knew at once the person, the man, was dangerous. He caught up, stopped us, and asked me to go with him. As I refused and turned away, he grabbed my neck and pushed me to the ground. My friend threw a log at him, which gave me a chance to get on my feet, and we ran. But something told me to stop. I sensed that the chase was strengthening him, casting us in a predator and prey relationship that was an ancient story with an inevitable ending. To stop that story's momentum, I stopped running, turned to face him and shouted, What do you want? In that moment, everything changed in a way that is impossible to describe. For the first time in my life, I was entirely without fear, knowing with utter conviction that no matter what this man did to me, he could never actually really hurt me. As he grabbed my wrist, I was overwhelmed by a powerful love for him and for everything, the forest around us, and for everything, the forest around us burst into radiant, pulsating life, as if the trees were on fire with the same love. In this indescribable experience, a few sensations remain clear. Everyone who had ever loved me came to my mind, and I felt their presence there among the trees. My protection was beyond question, and I was overcome by a joyful peace I had never known. When the man held a knife to my throat and told me to lie down and be quiet, a great sadness ached in me. A mother watching her small child hurt himself through ignorance might feel the same way. I watched him. I wanted him to stop endangering himself in this way, not with any urgency or fear, but simply because I could see that his self-torment was unnecessary. I spoke words I don't remember choosing. You're a man. You're a good man. You don't hurt people. Whether or not he understood, I felt his relief as he too realized he didn't have to do what he was doing. His grip on my wrist softened, but I stayed with him, holding his hand and repeated the words, You're a man, a good man. By now my friend had found a heavy branch as a weapon and was quietly making it clear she would put up a fight. I released my hand, he lowered the knife, and my friend and I walked away. That night, the man came to me in a dream. He wanted to show me something, a wound in the side of his back. It was a deep, fatal gash, raw and bleeding, and I knew it had been there for a long, long time. With the same love I had known in the forest, I put my hand on the wound. Afterward, when I told the story to others, they commented on our courage. My friend showed extraordinary courage, But what happened to me was something different. It was grace, and it is everyone's. Why this is a remarkable story is is this, uh, besides the story itself, the experience that, uh, in fact, this friend of ours, when she 
she felt very liberated. You can hear that from this experience. When she talked to her therapist, they felt, no, you must be repressing something because you're not angry enough or upset enough. And, you know, they couldn't quite get that actually there was, you know, there was like a sort of quantum shift through the intensity of the experience that, uh, that she opened into a consciousness that was, as you can hear, was completely um, healing and um, changed the whole dynamic. Now, hopefully, uh, we don't have to face these kinds of experiences. Some of us do. Sometimes these things happen. I know that push, push beyond the normal parameters of our strategies. But what is what is interesting in that open that moment of opening that there was. An opening to a deeper intelligence, a deeper, she calls, grace. That something else could happen. Something else that was loving. Something else that was healing. Something else that was redeeming. Something else that was inclusive. Something else that connected with not only the sense of her love or the love that came through her, but with the love of all beings. In this moment of profound relinquishment, of refusing to stop, refusing to keep going along the same driven patterns of fear. This is important. It's a message for us somehow as human beings because we're so driven by fear. We're so driven by strategies of trying to continually shore up certainty in a world that is actually eluding certainty all the time because it's the nature of reality, to be uncertain, to be constantly changing, to be beyond our grasp. And if we can actually accept that and allow for that, then it will bring us into, into a deeper peace. It doesn't mean to say that we can't build and create things, and, you know, but the, uh, the inner practice, the inner practice of this holding lightly, Allowing ourselves uh, not to have to con- continually hold and fill the gap of our inner aching. So it's not easy, you know, it's not easy to be so simple. <laughs> but it's, I think it's a necessary training for us. And it's a training that the, the Buddha encouraged us step by step, little by little, that even if it's not easy, it's doable. But he's not asking very much. Just say, can you be just with this much? You don't have to even think about the whole retreat and you know, the whole lifetime of, as one of our teachers once said, being sentenced to mindfulness forever is like a prison sentence. You, know? <laughs> you have to be mindful. You know? It's like, God, I hate that word. <laughs> But, you know, just this much, this moment, that's all that's being asked of us. You know, this path activity is just here. You know, just return here to the extent that we can. Feel the breath to the extent that we can. Feel the sensations in your body to the extent that we can. That's all that's being asked. Just stay on your seat if you can. (laughs) When I first started to practice, I was, you know, uh, yeah, complete and utter mess actually on so, so many levels and I'm not sure I'm all together now but anyway I would actually just sort of almost just sort of like try and nail myself to my cushion you know so that was it that if I could actually just stay on that square that was a, you know not kind of bounce off it 
into madness, then that was it. Yeah, that was a good, that, I made it. Then for many years, that was my practice. <laughs> so this, this uh, tomorrow will be, tomorrow morning when we begin our day, we'll be inviting you, if you'd like to join us, into a bowing practice. And this is, a, is from a Chinese school monastic training. Um, which is a, it's a very beautiful, um, it's an outward form to bow. So for some of us that's not comfortable, it's not within maybe our religious um, affiliation. So that's fine, you can just listen into the practice and be with us if you wish, otherwise you can come in later and just come into the sitting, or you can adjust into the bow according to what feels comfortable to you and what's possible with the body. The bowing practice is is a very ancient Buddhist practice. It's going to, it goes through all traditions because it is a practice that takes the body into this gesture of letting go to help to cultivate this inner attitude of mind. So you take the body uh, and bring the head down to the floor and then open the palms in this beautiful gesture of letting go and receiving, going forth, receiving and opening into the mystery of listening, whatever will emerge from that space. You know, it's a bowing around Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is a metaphor. Kuan Yin is these incredible images here. Kuan Yin at the back of the hall this incredible image of Kuan Yin here as we go out into the walking room in her royal pose, or his royal pose, she's a male, female, transgender, their royal pose, holding the wish-fulfilling gem. This is is a great sort of image of uh, the easefulness and the strength of the, the the fundamental primordial heart of awareness. This is the this is Kuan Yin, not so much Chinese image, as beautiful as it is, but it's uh, Kuan Yin is really this deeper listening heart. It's connected with compassion, with this grace, with this love, with this potentiality, with mercy. So we bring this practice into the retreat to help support us in our simplification, in our activity of of learning to listen beneath the strategies of the mind. Learning to die in each moment so that we can go forth in a new way. Learning to live in ways that decrease our footprints. This is from the the Khoisan Bushmen that lived in our area where we are now, in, uh, on the border of Lesotho, our hermitage. I lived there for over 30,000 years uh, in some kind of harmony with the cosmic forces and the natural forces. And all is left now mostly is their paintings in the caves, except their presence is still very much felt. The wind does this when we die. This is Dai Kuan. It's now passed over. Its language is passed over. The wind does this when we die. Our own wind blows. For we, who are human beings, make clouds when we die. Therefore, the wind does this when we die. The wind makes dust. 
because it intends to blow, taking away our footprints with which we had walked about while there was still nothing the matter with us. And our footprints, which the wind intends to blow away, would otherwise still lie plainly visible, for it would seem as if we still lived. Therefore the wind intends to blow and to take away our footprints. And this from Gobo. I feel that tonight I shall die, for I am wounded by an arrow, and the wound is telling me that I shall die. The bite of the wound is fierce, and the mouth of the wound does not heal, but it swells and throbs, so my flesh aches, and I burn with pain, and I feel that my heart is falling. I know I shall not see the break of another day, for my heart feels I am to die, and I cannot bear to think of the smell of springbok. But as for you, you must look after the children. You must keep them with you. You must keep them beside you. You must not take your eye from them. You must not give them away to strangers. You must keep a good fire so that the cold does not kill you. And though I will be dead, I will think of you and the children. I will still think of you and wonder whether you are warm and have food. I shall not speak to you again. I shall not speak to you in the darkness of the night. But you shall fetch wood and make up a fire and sit beside me and watch over me and take care of me as I writhe by the fire. For the time of death has come and the time for talking is over. I speak to you, holding up your heart so that you may understand. And then this is my commentary. Time, with relentless harvesting, your precious life is short. As all life gathers proof of our faith through the pilgrimage of the night that tests the grounds of our beings, so we may know the measure of our courage and the wellspring of our heart from which we sip nectar. Just as the brown striped bug drinks from the white elderflower and the orange thin-winged butterfly skips through ochre grasses and the grey knowing wolves move through cold white snow and the rhinos through dry bush felt go as lions stalk impala along the slow river slow is the earth's rhythm deep and unfathomable in our collective soul the rhythm of the day's tick-tock, winding through the web of our connection of internet consumption where we search what we hope to know. Because to truly know is not to know, and to not know is so much evidence of where faith can go. This is from the uh, Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. It's the faith heart the awakened heart. It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of barren wilderness. When the roots get water, the branches, leaves, flowers and fruits will all flourish. The regal tree of enlightenment growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are its flowers and fruits. By serving all beings, by serving this great earth, By pouring water of living, gentle and fierce compassion, together we will embody the flowers and fruits of our true awakening. 
And even when the realms of empty space are exhausted, the realms of living beings are exhausted, the karmas of living beings are exhausted, and the afflictions of living beings are exhausted, still we will accord with this, our deepest heart, endlessly, continuously, in thought after thought without cease, our body, speech and mind, never weary of this service. So says our true hearts. Gate, gate, paragate, parasangate, bodhi, shvaha. May we share the blessings of our practice today with this body that we call ours. May this body be well with each other. May each of us here, whatever we're working with, struggling with, may we receive the blessings of Dharma. May we be supported in our practice. And may we share the blessings of our practice. May they ripple out from our retreat to the land around us, to the cities, the towns across this great continent, across the oceans, suffusing this whole earth and all her many beings. May there be peace, may there be blessings, may there be compassion, and may there be liberation.
So for um, those of you that still have uh, some energy and wish and desire to practice, there's a session of walking meditation now, and then a final sitting together, which Dara will will guide from 9.15 until uh, for half an hour. And if you feel this first day of practice, you feel like it would be more beneficial to rest, then please feel free to do so.